Hi, friends. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Brown, and uh, I have the, uh, the really great pleasure of serving um, here at Broadway United Methodist as the executive minister. And uh, before we do anything else, before we do anything else, let me say to you, thanks for choosing to be here this morning. Uh, I full on recognize that uh, that choice was probably one of a hundred choices that you have already made this morning. Um, you chose what time to wake up, uh, unless you're like me and uh, you have a cat, and that cat chose what time you woke up. Um, and if you have a cat like me, um, I will pray for you. Um, you chose what to wear, or if you're like me and uh, colorblind, your, your wife or your spouse chose what to wear for you. So thanks, baby. I appreciate that. Um, you chose what to have for breakfast. You chose uh, whether or not to have coffee. You chose what to put in that coffee. Um, you chose to brush your teeth this morning. And um, I'm not going to say anything about how many of you just did the classic tongue in front of the teeth check to make sure that you actually did brush your teeth. Uh, this is a place of, uh, a space of grace and forgiveness. And so uh, I won't call you out, but it was a lot of you. It was a lot of you. So uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe make a different decision <laughs> next time. Um, I want to ask you, though, not about the decisions that you have made today, but um, in the span of your life, however, however long you have been alive, in the span of your life, Two questions. First, this one. Um, what, is, what is the best decision you have ever made? In the span of your life, you've made, I don't know, a billion decisions. So if you could narrow that down to the best decision you've ever made, what would it be? And listen, like if you are here with a partner, this is a layup for you. <laughs> this is a layup. All right. All right. Now we're going to flip the question uh, to not the best, but the worst. What is the worst decision you've ever made? What is the absolute decision that like you, if you could, you would go back and you would change that particular decision. Now, if you didn't in the previous question, nudge your spouse and let them know that they were the best decision that you've ever made, you might have just made the worst decision that you have ever made. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm not going to ask you to do something that I myself will not do, so here we go. Uh, the best decision that I ever made, right here on the screen, my beautiful bride, there she is. And um, some really great decisions overall in that picture. Uh, my wife, we've been, we'll be married 20 years next year, which is hard to believe. Best decision she ever made as well. Uh, number two, Y'all laughing like that was a joke. That's not. Uh, wait, go back. Hang on. Uh, and uh, my two kids also, some, some pretty great decisions. That was also a great decision. We went to Disney World, and um, it was a, a great decision to ride the teacups. Um, afterwards, reflecting, maybe not such a good decision. Some of us were not smiling uh, shortly after that picture was taken. Uh, the worst decision that, uh, that I have ever made... Uh, 12-year-old Jason saw a, uh, a basketball game and decided that um, I would commit myself uh, to pull for this team, uh, the Utah Jazz. And um, 
Yeah. If you didn't know that they play professional basketball, that's okay, because sometimes they don't know that either. <laughs> like, for real. Uh, since the time that I have started uh, pulling for the Jazz, cheering for the, the Utah Jazz, uh, the number of championships that they have won since that moment, and really before that moment, is uh, exactly zero. And uh, the um, amount of heartbreak and sadness and heartache since that moment is, um, is uh, pretty infinite for me personally. Uh, yeah, not a, great, <laughs> not a great decision to be, uh, to, to be very honest. But, but as you know, um, life isn't only made up of the good decisions. Right, life isn't only the autobiography that uh, that you want told. Instead, life is really the sum total of both the good decisions that you have made and will make, uh, but also the bad decisions that you have made and that you will make. Um, the decisions, by the way, that that not only you have made, but the decisions that have been made on your behalf. Uh, the decisions that uh, maybe you actually didn't have a say in, and yet, like bumper cars, you were, you were affected by. And what I love about Scripture is that it gives you all of it, right? Like when you read Scripture, you see more than just the good decisions, right? It's not just a litany of everybody, of men and women, making the right decision. Th that's in there, to be sure. But also... There's a realness to it. There, there is an authenticity to it. There's a, no, here's the good decisions, but here's also the bad decisions. And by the way, like not just the bad decisions, but, but also the results. What scripture doesn't do is gloss over reality. What scripture doesn't do is, is pretend. Instead, what scripture does is it gives you the full, the full picture of men and women, and how they decide to respond to the divine revelation of God. Over and over and over again, what happens in Scripture is that God shows up, and then you and I, human beings, we make a decision. We choose, to, we choose what to do with that revelation. And so over the course of this summer, we have been looking at uh, the life of one man in particular, and the good decisions and the bad decisions that he has made and the consequences of both the good decisions and the bad decisions. What I love about scripture is it gives you the reality, uh, but then it also gives you an invitation, an invitation to see the good decisions, the bad decisions, and to respond. It, it, it gives you uh, the goodness and the badness, and in the process, extends an invitation to each one of us and says, your turn. Like, you, you've seen how this goes, both good and bad, and now it's your turn. Because God is still revealing himself. God is still giving us a choice. And by the way, like, one of the um, interesting things for me about Scripture is that it, that it reveals God's power, but it reveals God's power not as a thing that overcrowds our power, not as a way that crowds out our ability to make decisions. Instead, what we see in Scripture is a God who is powerful enough 
to empower us, you and I, and the men and women in Scripture to make their own decision. And that's what happens in the life of David. David, um, you'll recall last week if you were here, and if you're not, you probably know this story, um, makes several bad decisions, like decisions that compound on one another, decisions that stack on each other. And those decisions have um, pretty bad consequences, not just for him, but also for Bathsheba, for Bathsheba's family, for the military. Like You can see in that story the power of decisions. You can see that the power of David's decisions. You can see the power of you and I to make decisions that impact the world around us. You can see the power that, that we have to respond to what God is doing. And this story comes immediately after that, where um, God sends a prophet to the king, to King David, um, I'll just read the story. Uh, This is 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 12. Again, this is right after all of the stuff with David and Bathsheba. Chapter 12, verse 1, 2 Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And, And let me hit pause here and say that that may sound like a verse that just puts the pieces on the board. That may sound like a verse that just says, like, hey, here's who is involved. But that verse is actually doing quite a bit of heavy lifting, right? Because if the Lord sends Nathan to David, essentially what that says is that God has decided not to give up on David. God has said, listen, like I'm I'm in it with you. And just because of this full on two chapters of disaster, like I'm I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. Like, we wouldn't be upset if God said, listen, David, uh, I gave you everything you wanted. Like, you, you are the king. You, you, this is your kingdom. And you messed up, so I'm sorry. I'm going to figure something else out. But that's not who God is. And so the power of this verse, the Lord sent Nathan to David, communicates to us a couple things, that God is still committed, that God is still connected and that Nathan responds. Let, let me hit pause here and say that, like, I don't think this verse necessarily captures the decision-making that went into Nathan's decision to actually go to David. Now picture this, like, he is a prophet, right? He speaks on behalf of God. He goes to the king, and he knows that his call, that his mission is to say to David, hey, you, you messed up, and you messed up pretty bad. And there's going to be consequences for that. He knows that he's about to tell the king things that he doesn't want to hear. And oh, by the way, Nathan has just, David has just spent the past um, several weeks essentially eliminating anybody that knows about his sin. So God says to Nathan, hey, go to David, correct him, and and we'll go from there. You can imagine that Nathan knows that he is taking his life into his own hands to go in front of the king that has just killed folks to cover this up. And yet, Nathan goes. And yet, Nathan decides to respond. Uh, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he, Nathan, came to him, David, he said, 
he gives them this kind of parable. And you, you've probably heard this at some point, but, but if you haven't, or even if you have, I hope you'll lean into this. Uh, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. So b- back in the day, this was the measure of wealth, right? It, it wasn't um, your car. It certainly wasn't your car. Uh, it, it wasn't your clothing, right? It was like, how much livestock do you have? So this rich man has a lot, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So in this parable, we see that uh, this one particular lamb is incredibly precious to this poor man, essentially like one of the family. He would be on the teacups at Disney World. That's a strange image. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, that wasn't in my notes. Nevertheless, here we go. Uh, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him, because this is what you did. Right, like similar to now, if someone comes to visit you, you, you prepare a meal for them. Um, in, in the, the rules of hospitality demanded that the rich man entertained the visitor with, with food and, and drink. So that's what he's going to do. But he doesn't do it out of his own flock. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for, one who, prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, again, like, this, the, the, recognize the weight of the sentence. Like, how hard did this rich man have to work? How many decisions did he have to make to take the tiny lamb that didn't belong to him? And yet, that's what he decides, and that's what he does. David hears this, verse 5, and responds. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives... This man who did this, he deserves to die. Not not just because he stole a lamb, but because of the injury that he has afflicted on the poor man. He essentially took the only piece of livestock that he had, and it wasn't just a piece of livestock, by the way, like it was essentially part of the family. So this mistake, this decision... Was, was egregiously wrong. And David, even in the midst of self-preservation mode, David recognizes that. He burned with anger. This man deserves to die. Verse six, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity, right? It's not only that he did the thing. It's not only that he sinned against his neighbor, it's, it's the intention that he brought. It's, it's the, uh, the, the utter lack of disregard for his neighbor or for how his decisions affected his neighbor. And then like um, one, of the, one of the great passages of scripture where like Nathan um, pulls down the curtain or gives you the abracadabra moment where uh, Nathan says to David, verse 7, you are the man. And by the way, like, not, 
as you are, as you understand, not as like a, you look good today, you're the man, or you did a good job, you're the man. Like, no, no. The, the, the man who you, who, whose anger you're, you burn against, that's you. You made this mistake. You did this. Your decisions egregiously harmed your neighbor. That's you. That is you. And pulled out of his own self-preservation, David recognizes what has happened. And after Nathan continues to describe the damage that David has done, David confesses and says, I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against my neighbor. He recognizes, he recognizes what he has done. Now, full-on confession here. Um, if I... Um, if I was the king, or like if I had editorial powers over 2 Samuel here, and I was David, or if I was David, I would say, hey, listen, listen, we fixed this, right? I confessed. I said I was sorry. I determined to do different. Um, let's just take that section out, right? Like nobody needs to know. Like, as far as the generations will know from this moment on, like, I was a fantastic person who never made a mistake. But that's not what we have in Scripture. What we have instead are human beings, just like me and you, who make good decisions, who make bad decisions, who are party to the revelation of God and have to figure out what to do with that. Um, as I read scripture, as I live my life, uh, what I see, what I have uh, discovered is that um, decisions, the decisions that you make, the decisions that I make, those decisions become direction. That God gives us free will, God gives us the opportunity to choose, God gives us the opportunity to decide um, what we want to do with our lives, like what you want to do with the time that you have here. And those decisions become directions, and those directions become destiny. Essentially, the decisions that you make, the decisions that I make, those decisions compound, they stack, and they take us somewhere. And on some level, you and I, we get to choose where we end up. That's the story of scripture. That's the story of Moses, who gets to decide what to do in the face of the burning bush. Um, that's the story of the disciples, both those who answer the call to follow Jesus and those like the rich young ruler who say, no, thank you. This is what happens in Acts. And, and, and literally almost every single one of Paul's letters that make up the New Testament is Paul helping new Christians make decisions that guide them into the heart of God. Now listen, uh, for real, that's, that's where I want to be. And if you have decided to be here this morning, I recognize that that's probably where you want to be as well. So um, I did a little research on decision-making, how we make decisions, and um, I discovered that the National Institute of Health has come up with an algorithm to describe the, um, the intricate interplay 
in your brain that happens when you make a decision. So essentially, when you make a decision, um, your brain goes through this complex thing where um, it's using your imagination to project outward what might happen. It's reaching backward into your memory to see if there's anything analogous to this moment um, to see maybe what would happen. Uh, there's your amygdala, which is your fear center, which is telling you like, okay, maybe we'll survive this, maybe we won't. Um, there's all kinds of interplay in your brain that goes into every decision that you make. And at the National Institute of Health, they came up with this algorithm uh, to help us understand that. There it is. And um, if that's not clear, well, there's the constraints at the bottom. Did you see those? Those might help you understand what's happening here. Uh, of course, u equals bracket u function k comma, yeah. Uh, let me confess to you, I don't understand that. Uh, <laughs> and if you do, listen, will you come talk to me after? Because I mean, for real, like, it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. But um, I don't understand it. But um, I don't want to leave you today without something. Um, so as I read scripture, here's what I see. Like I, um, I, I see in human beings, men and women, um, this decision-making process, and I hope this is helpful for you. When you are faced with a decision, I hope that you will run it through this particular filter. Uh, first, to approach the decision in terms of your call. That throughout history, throughout recorded history, God is constantly calling us, constantly calling you and me. This is, this is in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament. Um, no matter your culture, no matter your moment in life, no matter um, where you are at in terms of your faith, God is calling. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy puts it this way. And this was the Shema. This was the thing that they were supposed to put, the Israelites were supposed to put everywhere to recognize how important this particular filter was as they made decisions. You'll see this on the screen. This is Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then Jesus represents it in the New Testament as not just a reminder of how important it, it was, but how important it is. Jesus puts it this way. This is in Matthew 22, verse 37. This is the classic, like, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, with all your mind. And then he continues, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he adds to it by saying this in verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, in every decision that you make, this question, um, am I becoming who God is calling me to be? Now, recognizing that each one of us has maybe a more specific call, but we all live and exist and thrive under this particular communal call. Each one of us in our own way is called to love God and love our neighbor. So in every decision you make, does the, how does this decision flow into this? Um, the second one is this, the cost. Um, what, what does this cost? Essentially, another way to put this is, like, what does this moment demand of me? What, what, what am I to do in this moment? How much does this, how much does this decision cost? What does this moment demand? Um, Jesus puts it this way in a parable. This is Luke 14. Suppose one of you, 
wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Uh, For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. Ridicule you. Uh, The call and the cost. Uh, The third one is this, clarity. Um, Recognizing here that um, life is sometimes confusing and recognizing that life, like in scripture, like there's not always one black and white easy answer. That instead, it's it's usually not like an A or B decision. It's like an A through Z decision. And somewhere in there is the path that we are called to go. How much clarity do you have about what happens next? How much clarity do you have about the decision? And underneath this one comes the need for conversation. Listen, like full on, we need each other, right? Like you need people in your life who will remind you this is who you are. This is who God calls you to be. You need conversation, you need counsel, and you need community. And somewhere in those three, in counsel and community and conversation, clarity will come. Uh, The last one is this, like God gives us an imagination. God gives us opportunity to think about what happens next. And God also in scripture like reveals like, hey, this this is where we're going, to a place where there's no more crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain. So as we think about decisions, uh, the last one is this, consequences. Like what, is the, what are the potential results of each of these decisions? Essentially like rather than rushing in, thinking about like kind of mapping out what happens next. Honestly, had David, I think, thought about the consequences of what could happen in his situation with Bathsheba, I wonder if he would have made a different decision. Um, Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Galatians, uh, do not be deceived. Uh, Essentially, like you can't pretend on this one. Like you can't fake this one. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. However, um, whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal destruction life. Um, Your call, um, your cost, the clarity, and your consequences, these, I hope, will enable you to make decisions um, in this moment less like David, more like Nathan. But, But what we see is a God who doesn't give up on David, even in the midst of a bad decision. And so if you are like thinking, if you're hung up on, oh man, like I have ruined it. Listen, that is not the revelation of God, that's not the revelation of these pages. What happens instead is that David repents, David decides to do something else, and God restores. If you are there this morning, if you are struggling there this morning, I hope you'll hear this, um, that uh, God doesn't just leave us on our own. God doesn't just say, hey, figure it out, and here's a fancy rubric to do it. And it even alliterates, right? That's not, that's not God. Instead, God promises to be with us. Throughout scripture, God promises to be with us. Perhaps nowhere more powerfully than this, where uh, the disciples are, st- are struggling with what happens next. They're struggling to decide what to do next. And Jesus promises this to them. Jesus says, this is uh, John 
uh, chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. And essentially, that is a promise to be with us, to guide us, to not leave us alone. This is what he says. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. Listen, um, decisions are hard. And um, I recognize that it's difficult to not get hung up on decisions. But listen, God doesn't leave us alone. Uh, God is with us. God is with you. And so in this particular moment, um, I want to invite you to reflect. Uh, I want to invite you to think about maybe a decision you've made that you need to decide to do something different or a decision that you need to make for the first time. And we're going to give you space to do that. Um, the band is going to play. I'm going to pray for us. And um, if you feel so led, you are very welcome to approach the altar for prayer. But in the meantime, let's pray together. God, you are a good God who is constantly pouring out your love and presence on us. So in this moment, may we sweep everything else aside and may we just rest in your presence. God, may we know that in every moment, at all times, in every situation, you are with us and that you are guiding us. So God, may we embrace that now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.